So this should be fun tonight. I'd like to talk about insight into no self. Probably many of you have, of course, read some Buddha Dharma, and you know that one of the distinguishing characteristics of the Buddhist teachings is um, his teachings on no self. And uh, for a lot of people, this idea is kind of scary, uh, kind of challenges us and maybe makes us feel somewhat you know, insecure. So I'd just like to say a few words about what no self isn't. Got that. Doesn't mean that there's no meaning in life. Okay. Doesn't mean that there are no boundaries that we need to respect between each other. You know, sometimes people think of no self as that absence of boundaries, like anything goes kind of mentality. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth in the Buddhist teaching. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't get um, that we get get out of taking responsibility for our actions. Um, so no self has nothing to do with that. doesn't mean that we're not uh, unique in a lot of different ways and that we don't that we have our we all have our individual personalities and gifts and you know flaws or obstacles or challenges. You know, so it's not a, a statement about the fact that we're all the same. What it boils down to, basically, is that what the Buddha is suggesting by his teachings of no self, first of all, he's encouraging in the first step, and the most crucial step, is, is to take a look for yourself. And so he doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't encourage the sense of um, buying into a particular ideology and, and adopting it as truth. His approach was quite different. What he encouraged was an investigation, you know, an inquiry, a, a sustained um, observation of what our experience is on this planet, you know, what our experience is in this body, in this mind, in this environment, and to take a look for ourselves. But the teachings of no self, what they're s simply pointing to is nothing scary by any stretch. Uh, in fact, they're at the heart of liberation in this teaching, in this practice. And it's just pointing to the fact that there's no solid, abiding, unchanging self you know, that's directing the show. Yeah. So what he's pointing to is that we're part of nature. Yeah. What we take as the self is simply another expression of nature. And that's not scary. It's actually more scary, more frightening to think that we are somehow separate and apart. But for some of us, and, and we can be comforted by this idea, and a lot of us feel that, we're comforted by the idea that um, by clinging to this idea. You know, it gives us a certain degree of feelings of security or comfort. Um, but when we begin to look into 
the nature of our experience, the nature of our suffering, the kinds of, wa- the kinds of ways that we respond to the conditions that we encounter. Um, in other words, we begin to take a look at our conditioning. What we see is that this is a burden, this idea of a solid self directing the show, you know, something that isn't changing, uh, that it's a burden because what it, the effect is is that it actually limits us, you know, kind of closes us down. It closes us down to the possibility of change, you know, of discovery, of transformation, of learning. Because when we have some fixed idea, you know, fixed idea about who we are, you know, what's possible, what kind of person we are, what kind of person we're not. And then we experience the here and now through that lens, through that lens. You know, transformation, change, growth, energy, joy, you know, not so possible. It's not so possible because we're relating. It's forcing us to relate to the present through our past conditioning. Because, of course, the construction of the self, that idea of the self, comes from our conditioning, from ideas that we've picked up along the way. And in some ways, the tragedy of this kind of conviction that there's some unchanging self back there somewhere is that it does create a lot of pain, and it creates this sense of separation from each other. It provides a lot of justification for self-interest in harming others, you know, on a very crude level. But it also just leaves us in a somewhat contracted state of mind, because then we have to protect the self. You know, we have to protect the solid self from the reality of change. We have to protect the self from the reality that conditions in the body and the mind, conditions in our environment, are changing from one moment to the next and not in our control. And this is very frightening. This is very frightening. So in Dharma practice, we're we're going to begin to question. That's what we're doing here, is we're beginning to, whether we realize it or not, begin to question um, this identification process, this taking experience as oneself. And the way we begin that process is by first cultivating a very different relationship to what arises in the here and now. So that when we're observing the body, or observing our minds, or interacting with others, or observing nature. We're cultivating an attitude that is open, open-hearted, being more allowing. And that, of course, creates space. Creates space for experience to express itself, to rise from the unconscious to the conscious, so that we can take a look at it and, and examine it understand its nature, whether it's a sensation in the body, whether it's a reaction to that sensation, whether it's an emotion or mind state or the bird singing. When the mind is open and attentive and present, mindful, paying attention, 
without any preconceptions, well, it actually gets to see things as they are. That's the fruit of cultivating this kind of attitude. That's the fruit of cultivating awareness, is that we, it creates an opportunity to see things as they are, you know, free of preconceptions, free of ideas about who we are and who we're not. So, of course, that opens up the opportunity for insight and wisdom, learning and discovery. There are some pretty obvious ways, and they become quite apparent um, on retreat. Um, A lot of people will report them, although sometimes there's a lot of embarrassment or shame about you know what the mind will do when it's left to its own devices um, but you know we've been looking at our minds for a long time and I don't feel like I've seen everything but I've seen an awful lot uh, from either my own mind or just talking to you know thousands of yogis practicing um, in one very predominant way that we construct a self out of our experience, and this is really out of our everyday experience, is by comparing ourselves to others. Comparing yourself to others. A lot of yogis compare themselves to their neighbor, to who they're sitting next to, or who's sitting in the hall. And particularly if you've got a lot of hindrances, like restlessness or boredom, and you're kind of looking around because you're bored and you're checking everybody out, and you see that somebody's sitting really quietly and they don't move, and we create all sorts of ideas about what that person's experience is. And of course, we have no idea what their experience is uh, because it's in our imagination. But we can begin to see then, we look at them and then we look at ourselves. Bad meditator. <laughs> no good. Should be further along than I am. That's a really common one. The Buddha described this comparing mind where we, as conceit, you know, conceit. And conceit expresses itself in different ways. When we think of somebody being conceited, we always think of somebody who thinks they're better than us. And of course, we can't stand those people. Um, but conceit you know, expresses itself in different ways. One way is that the typical conventional way that um, I'm better than you, so I have conceit. But also conceit is I'm worse than you. And then there's even a more subtle conceit, which is that I'm equal to you. And at the heart of that is this comparing mind that's creating this sense of self. And it's fascinating to uh, see that and see how naked it can be and how much turmoil it creates for us. You know, and so many of our ideas are shaped based on our comparison to other people. You know, and that's one of the reasons why we often fall short. You know, we read these Dharma books and we read about people having fantastic experiences, you know, deep samadhi, deep enlightenment, really transformative things. And we're sitting here 
and doesn't really feel like that's what's happening. Um, but you know, what often is left out of that comparison is the person who's talking about that probably has been sitting for 30 years uh, and they've worked their butts off on the cushion, probably literally. Um, and uh, they've earned it. Yeah, they've earned it. But of course, the comparing mind really creates so much more suffering. You know, in other words, rather than just you know, understanding, you know, being patient, and just dealing with things as they come up, um, you know, in this environment, it's interesting. I know there's people having a lot of pain in their body. Um, and um, one thing I appreciate about this style of Vipassana practice is that you know, it's um, more open and flexible. There are other practices that are much more firm about um, body posture and not moving, kind of toughing it out through pain. We take a little bit softer approach. I think it's a wiser approach. Um, hmm. Just forgot my point. There was a point in there. Point. It's gone. Comparing mind. Comparing mind. I don't know if it fits. <laughs> Memory is also changing. Unfortunately, I don't over-identify with my memory. I actually, if I did, I would be in big trouble. So better than, worse than, equal to. Watch that mind state, because it reinforces the suffering. You know, instead of dealing, well, this is what I was going to right? Instead of dealing with the conditions that we're encountering, see, this is the problem with this idea of self, is that uh, dealing with the conditions the conditions themselves are difficult sometimes, for sure, absolutely. Um, but what makes it even more difficult is this idea, you know, that it shouldn't be difficult, you know, or I should be, you know, able to sit with this. So, you know, whatever the idea that, that we're kind of imposing on it, and it's really that construction of self, that idea about ourselves that we're trying to hang on to. And the fact is, practice humbles us over and over again in the face of conditions. Because so often what we see is how we get caught by the conditions that we encounter. And how much turmoil and suffering can be generated, sometimes by the smallest things. So this conceit, this whole imposition of a, a self onto the here and now, into the here and now, really makes this, uh, the whole process so much more challenging. Creates a lot of what we call in Buddhism dukkha, discontent, unsatisfactoriness. Another way that we um, create the self is um, through this constant evaluation. And the people on the East Coast really have this in a big way. I mean, I. <laughs> I spend some time in the West Coast, and it doesn't seem to be quite as strong there. Um, but that might be my imagination. Uh, here, I'm really aware of it, teaching in CIMC. And, you know, it's such an insanely competitive, demanding, impossible environment in some ways. Um, and so we're constantly evaluating ourselves. In other words, we're not dealing with, you know, 
there's the conditions we're dealing with, but then there's that imposition that um, I'm not successful or I'm failing. You know, that's one place where we construct this model or this frame. I'm a success, I'm a failure. We can swing back and forth, even in one sitting. Two minutes apiece, success. <laughs> 10, 15 minutes of restlessness, really failure, especially fourth day. You know, the fourth day you should be, right? You should be in samadhi most of the time. Um, right? That's, that's not my voice. Um, so this valuation, success, failure, praise and blame. You know, we create this sense of self. Uh, uh, praise, good, good self, blame, bad self. Um, we construct ourself, and, this, and to me this is a, really a, a, a deep aspect of the Buddha's teaching. We can see this over and over again. Uh, just the fact that what we do is we construct the self out of our past conditioning. You know, the kind of messages, the kinds of meanings, the, the kinds of things that we absorb. You know, we listen, we absorb, we take on. You know, of course, one of the main forms of that conditioning, of course, comes out of family situations. Um, and you can just see, you know, how children take that on. And if we've looked at our own minds, you know, so often we, we can see, and it's, maybe it's a little bit discouraging to see that, but sometimes you can see aspects, you know, of your parents or parent, um, whatever the family situation was. We can see how, we can see how easily and deeply conditioned and influenced we are um, by that kind of um, very subtle and sometimes subtle, sometimes not subtle um, messages that we pick up about who we are. You know, who we are. I mean, I've talked to countless people where, you know, their parents have called them stupid and their parents have defined them in so many different ways and treated them in so many ways that, you know, it, it would be very, very difficult. I mean, it would be remarkable if you could come through that and actually not have some conviction that say you were stupid because you heard it so much. Um, because the mind, especially young mind, is so um, you know, absorbent. It's, it's not solid. Our minds aren't solid either. As we know, children take things in. And educational system, and newspapers, and all the stuff that people get their information, their values from, conditions our idea about ourselves. Um, we construct a self. Uh, you know, we, have, we have images about ourselves. And, and the I am comes up a lot, right? I am a good person, or a bad person, or a flawed person, or a smart, dumb, attractive, not attractive, useful, useless. That comes up on retreat, that feeling. Useless. Okay, I am this kind of person. You know? One doesn't, um, one has a hard time with metta practice. This is a common one. One doesn't sometimes recognize that it's actually a practice. You know, just like mindfulness, it develops slowly. But you know, somebody has a hard time with metta, or they don't instantly feel tremendous loving kindness uh, to their enemies, or to themselves, or, or to the difficult person, or whatever. Um, and what does that mean? It means I'm not a loving person. You know, that's how we tr interpret it, you know, that. Not realizing that it's just an innate quality of mind that just simply needs to be nurtured. But when the I am gets in there, you know, I am not 
a person that has any metta. Mm-hmm. That's a misunderstanding of the practice, and it's a misperception. I, I think somebody, I'd have to check this out with Narayan, I think somebody could have a hard time with metta practice, I think, and still have metta. Mm-hmm. Is that possible? <laughs> yeah. I think so, too. Because I don't really do a lot of metta practice. <laughs> I think I have some metta. So it's not inherent in that practice is the point I'm making. But it can be developed and nurtured and valuable in many ways. We also identify with work and uh, you know, social status, huge. Uh, we also create a self out of our attachment to views and opinions. Oh, yeah, that's really big. You know, the one holds a view and opinion. And don't you like to be right? I mean, isn't that a nice feeling? I am right. Yeah, of course. You know, I am right. It's it's not that I hold a view that may or may not be right, but it's I am right. You know, you can we can see. Buddha talked a lot about the suffering of attachments of views and opinions, and how we construct the self out of that. And then, of course, that creates not only interpersonal problems, um, but it creates global problems too. So, the Buddha decided to investigate this idea of an unchanging, you know, solid self. You know, he just did, I think he just didn't buy into it, you know, that, that, that there was this solid self. Maybe it just didn't make sense to him. And also, he'd been paying attention to his experience really closely, and he wasn't encountering it. And see, that's the test. That's really the test, is when you've looked long and deep, you know, you've developed that capacity to open to your experience and to pay attention to it, and you have steady attention, and you're looking at your experience just with that intention to learn. Um, you know, that's when we begin to see, and that's exactly what the Buddha did, and that's exactly what we're doing here. You know, we're doing exactly the, teach- the practice that the Buddha uh, did in his own life. What the Buddha discovered in his exploration you know, of this body-mind process, you know, he's looking, examining, taking a look, watching the mind, watch the mind do its thing. You know, the arising and passing away of experiences in the body, the arising and passing away of experiences in the mind. And what he discovered was that the source of our suffering is delusion or confusion. And the way that confusion expresses itself, the way that ignorance or delusion expresses itself, is in this process of attachment or clinging or identifying, taking as a self changing experiences that we have. To me, this makes a lot of sense when you think about it. If just thinking just this one thought, attaching to something, let's forget the whole idea that we can be non-attached. Let's just look at attachment. That attaching to something that's changing, where is that going to lead us? It's going to lead us into tension. Because we're holding on to something that by its very nature, no matter what we think about it, no matter what we feel about it, 
by its very nature, it's changing. And so if we hold on or attach or cling, okay, we suffer. You know, it leads to a sense of fear or discontent. Again, that term dukkha often arises in the Buddhist teaching, really pointing to that notion of holding on to something that's moving away or disappearing or dissolving. Um, and the mind thinking that if it could only hold on, it would be happy uh, and that it would be safe, protected. Um, but lo and behold, the, the, the nature of the experience um, is that it's changing. So of course that begs of the question is, do we have to suffer you know, because of that fact? You know, if we're living in a world that's changing in a continuous way, do we have to suffer? And of course, the Buddha was very clear about this. No, we don't have to suffer. But we have to move into a relationship with the changing conditions that's wiser, that's more compassionate, that's clearer. We need to move into a relationship where we see things as they are, and then we get free. You know, that, that's the essential Buddhist teaching, is when you see things as they are, you free yourself from suffering. And then when you live in harmony with that truth, um, there's deep peace. Um, and that discovery or that lesson or that insight you know, it unfolds in more and more subtle and deep levels with practice. You can practice a very, very long time and continue to make that discovery and understand subtle attachments and other subtle levels of liberation and freedom you know, and what that means. And also, as one practices, one discovers that it's not scary to not be attached, you know, and that there's a way of developing a mind that can live in life, live life fully, um, uh, without clinging to everything that comes along. Uh, it's kind of hard for us to relate to that, though. I think it's hard for us to understand that. Um, so we don't actually have to really buy into that as much as uh, just keep looking at our minds. And so when the Buddha investigated this body-mind process, um, what he discovered was that there is no abiding, solid, uh, unchanging self, and that we construct a self out of identification with changing experiences. And when we talk about identification, what we're talking about is uh, this psychological process, process in the mind that claims a particular experience as me or mine. You know, basic way is to feel the body and then claim it as me or mine. Um, mental state, me or mine. You know, this, this imposition of identification. This experience is happening. We all know the nature is to change, but there's also a strong tendency to identify. So what the Buddha discovered was not only that all things are changing, um, but he's, he was also a teacher, extremely brilliant teacher. And uh, he kind of organized things, you know, amazingly. Organized things in certain lists, ways of thinking about things. And what's particularly useful about the lists, um, I'm not a big fan of lists, um, 
But what's useful about the list was that it was easier to remember the teachings, the way that they were organized, because most of his teachings were preserved orally over hundreds of years. And so the monks and nuns would remember his teachings, because partly because of their repetitive nature, but also because it was organized in a very systematic, uh, logical way. And so what the Buddha um, discovered was that there were like five aspects of our experience. Um, five aspects of our experience in this body-mind process um, that we tend to cling to or identify with, different categories. You know. The first category was mental, material form. Yeah. Material form is one. Feelings is two. Second aggregate of clinging is feelings. Perception is three. Mental formations, four, and consciousness, five. And what the Buddha dis- discovered was that all of these aggregates of clinging, material form, feelings, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, are in a process of change and flux. But we take them as self in a lot of different ways. That's what he discovered. So let's just take take them one at a time. Material form, there's cars. Strong tendency in this culture to identify with your car. Notice that. Um, identifying with your home. Really put a lot of ourselves in our home and have a lot of identification with that. You know, whenever we have visitors come over, we always clean up. Uh, and, you know, we want people to think well of us, that we always live like this. <laughs> orderly, everything in place. And we're pretty orderly, but not that orderly. Um, we identify with our clothing. You know, think how much time you spent reflecting on what you were going to bring. And you wanted to make sure it was comfortable, but also that you would fit in with the IMS culture, retreat culture. You want to do that. Uh, but the big, the big area of identification of material form, of course, is the body. I've got a, quite a bit to say about this and not a ton of time. But let me just kind of move through the body as quickly as I can. It's a huge area of identification and a huge area uh, that when we identify with, it creates a lot of suffering. Uh, we invest self-worth uh, in our appearance. Um, our self-image, obviously, is tied to the body. see that all the time. Uh, we judge ourselves and others by the bodies, whether it's the shapes, colors, whatever. Um, we carry around all sorts of ideas about beauty, so we have a lot of value judgments about certain physical characteristics. You know, I was in a dentist office one day, and I was reading a People magazine. And um, I was reading this interview with a whole series of um, models, you know, fashion models. And th- the theme of the article was kind of, what's wrong with my body? And all the models would comment on their bodies. And, choose one thing in their body that they didn't like. And, you know, it would be the nose or the ears or the eyes or the chin, usually the face. 
sometimes it was the full body too, but a lot of it was around facial features. And it was fascinating to listen to them tear themselves up. Um, you know, and, 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 and in this culture, of course, the reason they're models is because at least a lot of people think they're beautiful. Um, so here we have people who, you know, highly, their bodies are highly valued anyway, so let's put it that way. Um, but um, their idea of themselves is deeply conditioned, of course, by the industry that they're in and by people's or what their imagined perceptions of other people have on them. So we can see a strong identification, not just with models, but with ourselves too, right, in, in our appearance. Uh, just look, I've been reading a lot about this lately, actually. There's been a lot in sort of current events news about um, kids and kind of their, what's happening with kids today uh, in terms of this whole thing around body and self. And, you know, there's been articles about kids going to, you know, hairdressers and hair salons and spending like $300, you know, to get their hair done in a certain way or, um, you know, a lot of facial stuff is going on. And I read this article just recently about these eight to 10 year olds getting waxing. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know what waxing is. <laughs> I don't want to know what waxing is, but it doesn't sound right. <laughs> it just does not sound right. There's something about it, some discernment there, that an eight-year-old getting waxing. Hmm. But it's true. And a large percentage of a lot of these salon business is kids eight to 10 years old. You know? I mean, it's absolutely insane. Okay, period. No, no doubt about it. And what it is is, of course, is these kids are being taught some very destructive messages, but that they're being taught that, they're, they're, that they are their body and that their body needs to appear a certain way in order to get accepted and appreciated. And that is dukkha, big time. And that's where the conditioning comes in. You can see knows where these kids are going to be in 10 years. They're going to think they're over the hill at 20. Honestly, no. They'll start thinking they're old. In fact, there's another article I read <laughs> about plastic surgery for young kids. I mean, you know. It's... Anyway, so those are very, you know, what we might call crude. Most of us aren't going to send our kids at 8 years old to get a, a waxing. Um, but we do identify with our own bodies. You know, we do have certain value things. You know, like recently, um, it's a little confession. Um, not that joining a gym is bad, but I joined a gym this past year. And uh, you know, it's a good thing. I feel good about myself joining this gym, local gym. It's, I'm anonymous. It's low key. Um, not like a pickup place or something like that. Um, <laughs> and, and, Pretty much, pretty much everybody keeps to themselves, <laughs> checking each other out from a distance. Um, so I joined this gym, and it's been, it's been a while. So you know, I'm kind of noticing my body's changing. It's getting stronger. My heart feels stronger, and you know, it's not like I'm pumping huge weights or something. But you know, I use the machines a little bit. I use a little free weights. I 
do a lot of aerobic stuff and some stretching, you know, just modest stuff, relatively modest anyway. And watching my body get stronger, you know, I, of course, quote, I feel good about myself. Okay, body's changing, getting stronger, in shape. And, you know, of course, even though this is a low-key gym and all that kind of stuff, it, it does have mirrors. Okay, of course. <laughs> all gyms have mirrors. I think every gym I've ever been in has a mirror. And they're in front of the machines or the weights so that you can look and get impressed. Um, and so, uh, you know, when I'm on my machine, I'm looking at the mirror, you know, and, da -da -da, you know, and noticing, oh, yeah, those arms are getting a little bigger, you know, and uh, body, shoulders are getting stronger, you know, my heart feels good, all this. And then this guy walks by. He's got, like, <laughs> tree trunks for arms, <laughs> you know. I mean, his arms as big as my chest, <laughs> right? And there's a lot of guys walking around like that. And I have no aspiration to look like that by any stretch. But what I've noticed is, like, I'll be looking and thinking, oh, yeah, you know, good, good for you, Michael, you know, doing this. You're getting stronger. And then one second later, I feel like a human toothpick. You know? <laughs> one second later, I just look at my arms and they look skinny. <laughs> and, you know, the comparing mind and identification with the body. And then I think, boy, I got a long way to go. So identification with the body creates a lot of problems for us. You know, a lot of fear around sickness, aging, and death. So much of that has to do with, of course, our identification with the body. Another, the second um, advocate, skanda is the Pali term for it, skanda. It's a little easier to say than advocate. Um, skanda is feelings. And feelings uh, in the Buddhist frame, in terms of the skanda, is pleasant, uh, sensation, unpleasant sensation, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. In other words, any experience that we experience through the sense doors like hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking, thinking is a sense door, they, all of these experiences have a feeling quality to them. They're either a pleasant feeling quality or an unpleasant feeling quality or a neutral feeling quality. Tone is another way of, of saying it. And that's an area that we tend to attach to, obviously, and cling to. I was just watching my mind tonight, uh, just before the talk. And I was thinking about the advocates. And I have this little routine where I walk around. Um, a few of you probably have noticed me. I walk around the driveway, down the road, and do this little loop. It takes just about five minutes. I've timed it. Um, it takes about five minutes. And I, and I get out there at different times, and I like to do it before the Dharma talk. Um, and I usually make it around twice. But around the second time, before I get finished with the second, I start thinking, boy, I'd like to walk around again. You know, I'd really like to walk around a third time, but I'm running out of time. But what I see in that is that it's such a pleasant experience. You know, it just feels so nice. The sun is at the spot, you know, this time of year at least. It's really extremely pleasant. And the, because of that pleasantness, you know, there's that attachment. Oh, I wish I didn't have to give the talk tonight. I wish I could just keep walking for a while. You know, the thought will bop up. And I'll see it, observe it, thought, and then come in, and I'm usually on time. Um, but attaching to the pleasant feelings, you know, holding on to them, clinging to them, it's, a, it's, a, it's really um, an insightful thing to pay attention to, is the feeling quality of an experience. Because how we relate to our experiences through the sense doors, you know, how we react to them, so much of it is depends on whether it's a pleasant 
unpleasant or neutral feeling. So that's the second. Third is perception, which is recognition. And perception is deeply conditioned. There's a lot of self, a lot of history, a lot of ideas about shoulds and shouldn'ts, a lot of value judgments uh, infused in our perception. You know, we make conclusions based on our perceptions. Um, There's a yogi at CIMC. Um, He shared this in a group, and he'd be thrilled if I shared the story with you. So I'm not revealing anything, uh, you know, private. Uh, His name is George. And he's kind of an unconventional uh, yogi. The CIMC people are smiling because everybody knows George. If you ever went to a Wednesday night talk, you know George. Uh, He always has at least one question, and it's a long one. Um, so Georgie's businessman got into the Dharma maybe around hmm, 60 and he's really into it he doesn't sit that much but he really applies the practice to his life and he's seen a lot of change it's wonderful he's seen a lot of change in terms of what's always troubled him is his aversive reactions and he's seen a lot of change in terms of how he relates to other people whether it's family like his relationships have just been transformed by his work in the Dharma you know, his, he's worked so hard on his aversion and impatience and judgments that you know, he's improved his relationship with his son and his family. and just it, It's really very inspiring um, to see somebody go through that. Uh, but he was talking about one time when he was standing in line at the CVS. And it was a pretty long line. And he is an impatient kind of guy. And some man, a little bit older than him, kind of meandered and cut in line. And he cut right in front of him. You know, George didn't like that. You know? So George had a reaction of impatience or aversion. And he created this whole scenario about what a jerk this guy was and how insensitive you're cutting in line and you know, long line, all this kind of stuff like this. But George, because he's a practitioner, observed his aversion. And his perception was this guy was a loser, jerk. Watched his aversion calmed down a little bit, and then decided just to, to start a conversation, casual conversation. Turns out that this man was recovering from a stroke, and his mind was still pretty disconnected. You know? I mean, he had a lot of gaps in his awareness of his environment. And he had no idea about cutting a line or any of that stuff. He just saw the line and just walked towards it and ended up in front of George. And it's fascinating you know, because we draw all these conclusions about folks in ourselves based on our perception. And so often, it's absolutely not true. And that often happens on silent retreats. So watch out for that. <laughs> Be mindful of that because oftentimes there are a lot of surprises at the end. You know? So perception, buying into it buying into it as real or solid or true. That's attachment. Fine to have that perception of this person, you know, whatever, but to be attached to it is to believe it. It's true. Believing that the body is you. Believing that feelings are you. Believing that perception is you. Fourth is mental states. My God, we could spend hours on this topic. Identification with mental states. Tremendous self in that world of thought, 
emotions, moods. You know, the mind has a lot of pleasant states of mind, and it has a lot of unpleasant states of mind, and it has a lot of neutral states of mind that arise. And what we can see over and over again is that there's a strong tendency to claim the things that are going on in your mind as me or mine. As me or mine. And the reality that you have to look at to see is that the nature of any of the mental states that you experience Although they may repeat over and over again, the nature is that they change. That it's a form of energy. Just like any of these aggregates, they're all forms of energy. Their nature is to arise under certain conditions, express themselves. The conditions are our conditioning. Things that have happened in the past, mental states arise relating to the here and now mental states arise. You sit for eight hours a day, it's very possible that you're going to get bored at some point during that sitting or during that day because the conditions are different than what we're used to. We might be used to getting distracted, but in these conditions, different states of mind are the space is there for them to surface. But if we look closely, and this is what happens when we practice for long enough time, we begin to recognize that they're changing, that they're not self. They're not me or mine. They're changing. They're rising and passing away. And the fruit of seeing that fact, and that's the fruit of seeing any of these aggregates, is that it develops equanimity and balance of mind and more inner spaciousness. Because if we don't have to claim this particular state of mind as me or mine, we can just deal with the condition itself. We can learn to respond so much more easily with wisdom and compassion if we don't impose a self on it. In other words, if we don't impose a self-judgment or a self-criticism. If we just see, okay, this is a painful state of mind that's arising, I need to look at what the most skillful way to handle this is. You know, maybe I need to go for a walk outdoors if I'm feeling really upset and angry or feeling a lot of sadness. Maybe I you know, need to go to my room and have a big cry. Uh, you know, maybe uh, if the mind is feeling really tight, I need to do some walking. If I'm feeling restless, maybe I really just need to sit very quietly and not even move. You know, that's often the wisest way to work with restlessness, just sit quietly. Not always. Not always. Depends on how intense it is and what our relationship to restlessness is. So it's wisdom that we're applying. But when we identify, it gets in the way of wisdom. And it also absolutely gets in the way of compassion. Because that whole construction of self and other, because that's inevitable. You can't construct yourself without constructing the other. That's what creates the obstacle for compassion, either compassion for ourselves or others. So that's why it's so important to, to begin to see, uh, to learn to uh, let things come up to the surface, but observe them as they express themselves. Look into their nature, not necessarily the story they're telling you, which is, this is my sadness, this is my anger, this is my um, guilt. You know, that's the story of that particular emotion. 
this link with that particular emotion. See it as guilt. See it as sadness. See it as sorrow or anger. The mind, you know, can begin to relax a little bit. You're giving yourself a bit of a break instead of claiming it as me or mine. And that's not distancing or detaching. You know, it's different. It's actually becoming more intimate with that experience because it's open-hearted investigation. You're open to that experience. You're not pushing it away or keeping it away from yourself. That's what our thoughts do. Finally, the fifth advocate, sorry I've run out of time, um, is consciousness. Consciousness is the knowing faculty of mind. And clearly there's a lot of identification uh, with uh, consciousness or the knowing faculty of mind. And where we can see this identification process, especially when we're practicing the Dharma, and we're paying attention to our experience and we're observing things, you know, we're looking, paying attention. Where it shows up in terms of identification is this conviction, this idea that there's an observer. It's really hard for us to believe that they can just be observing without an observer. That's a tough one. You know, the commentator, you know, the person that's sitting back there watching your breath, you know, kind of watching every move you make kind of thing, you know, watching your walking. You know. Instead of just observing the walking, there's an idea that's linked with that observing. And that's, when we look very closely and we begin to recognize the observer, we can see that it arises and passes away. In fact, the nature of the observer is, is it's actually just a thought. You know, it's just a thought about observing. It's just an idea, way in the back of that mind, saying, I'm watching my breathing. You know, because if, if you bring mindfulness to I am watching, you see that it's just a thought. Very simple. It's just a thought. But we get angry at the observer sometimes. You know, we, we don't want the observer. You know, it kind of makes us sometimes feel quite self-conscious. But fortunately, not only just being mindful of the observer, seeing that it's a thought, but as practice deepens, you know, that the power of the observer, that thought form, slowly but surely it erodes, you know, begins to lose its power. And then one can be in more, a more direct relationship to the here and now, you know, unencumbered, unburdened by the observer. But we have to develop a friendly relationship to that thought form of the observer. You know, if we want to get rid of it somehow, um, it creates more tension in the mind. You just need to trust that um, we'll let that observer go as time develops, as a practice matures. So we're all a bunch of aggregates changing from one moment to the next. Um, and, you know, once again, you don't need to buy into that fact. You just need to pay attention. You know, it's a, the most inspiring thing, I think, about the Buddha's teaching is, is that we all have that capacity 
to see into the nature of our experience, you know, to discover the truth for ourselves if we train our minds. Um, and uh, that's exactly what we're doing right now uh, because we get liberated through our, our own effort. Sansanim said, you know, believe in yourself. That's the interesting thing about language. A Korean Zen master that I spent some time with used to say, believe in yourself, and everybody would say, hey, wait a second. It's the Buddhist teacher saying self. We mean believe in yourself. There's no self. You have to go past the language. What was he talking about? What he was talking about is the necessity for um, a little bit of confidence in practice. You know, that perseverance will pay off. Faith that we all have that capacity for liberation. That we earn that liberation through our own effort. And so don't let self-doubt get in the way. It's just a state of mind. And that's what he meant by believe in yourself. I know I pondered that a long time. because It's always a little puzzling what he meant. And I think that's what he meant. Just the value of perseverance in the face of all the challenges. So believe in yourself. And let's sit for a minute. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings learn to see with clarity and wisdom. And may all beings be free from all forms of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.